Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is the week of January 6th, and obviously we're going to spend a lot of time talking about uh, that anniversary for the rest of the week. But this seems very timely to be joined by Evan Osnos, who is a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of the book Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. And Evan is also the winner of the National Book Award for his book, The Age of Ambition. Thanks for joining me today, Evan. My pleasure, Charlie. It's great to be with you. I appreciate it. You, know, you were telling me about how the National Book Award uh, works like kind of like the the Oscars, where you show <laughs> up and you don't know whether you've won it. I mean, you have to get all dressed up and everything and, and sit there and wonder. Yeah. yeah, and I suppose if you're like me, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of superstitious and have a, uh, I don't know, modest sense of what might happen. And I was like, well, this will just be a nice occasion to go and have a nice dinner with my wife. And so I didn't really assume anything. Anything would come out of it, and I was very lucky. Uh, it was lucky to be invited and and luckier to win, but uh, there we are. Well, I, I want to talk to you about your book, Wildland, because you, you you write about the the fractured nation that you found when you came home after years of reporting abroad. And we, of course, spent a lot of time here talking about what has happened to America. How did we get to where we are right mm-hmm. now, and particularly timely with the, the week of January 6th. But I wanted to start off by talking about your recent profile in The New Yorker of uh, Dan Bongino, the talk show host and internet personality who is kind of the new Rush Limbaugh. And before we started this, you know, we were talking about, you know, what's happened to conservatism. And I told you that, you know, I, I, I feel the need to update some things that I've written in the past. You know, I wrote the mm. book, uh, how the right lost its mind. I wrote a lot about Rush Limbaugh, but I have, I will confess to you that the arc, the trajectory of the right since then, everything has accelerated. And certainly one of the ways in which things have, uh, have changed is that you people have, you know, Rush Limbaugh is gone, but he's been replaced by Dan Bongino. And that's a significant shift, isn't it? I mean, I I assume that's one of the reasons why you're, you're, you're writing about this. And for a lot of our listeners who don't spend time on conservative uh, media, I, I hope that this gives you a glimpse of, of why things are going the way they are. So just talk to me a little bit about why you chose to sit down with uh, Dan Bongino. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I, I, in some ways, I think, Charlie, look, I'm a big fan of your book and this piece about this radio host and personality, Dan Bongino, in a, in a, in a way it sort of picks up, I suppose, um, it picks up where your book takes us, which is to say, all right, here's the story of how we got to Donald Trump's candidacy in terms of media ecosystem. And then what happened? And it, I think for a lot of us, sort and like, as you just described, a lot of people have kind of particularly since the 2020 election have tuned out or have at least taken a little bit of a lower level of intensity in terms of following this stuff simply for, I don't know, emotional management purposes. They're not listening every day to what is being said on hour after hour after hour of radio. And I I thought it was really important to sit down and say, okay, we all see the poll numbers that show us that just to cite the most recent polls that large numbers of Republicans say that January 6th was, as they put it uh, in one poll, defending freedom, um, or they say it was about patriotism. And I, I was kind of fascinated by what was happening on a day-to-day basis, an hour to hourly basis, that was sustaining those ideas, that was creating that that realm of uh, that realm of belief. Because Limbaugh was the dominant figure in American conservative broadcasting for decades. And 
when he died in 2021, it was in a way a kind of seam. It was like a transition moment in mm -hmm. history. And the people who would follow him would be uh, both creators of ideas, but also reflective, I think, of the of the ecosystem. And Dan Bongino is one of the people who is vying to be that, to, to be the heir. He's, he's in the slot. There are others who are in that uh, 12 to 3 p.m. slot. But I think you know, just one thought and then I'll built up is, you know, there were, for a long time, Rush Limbaugh attracted a, a, a fairly wide variety of different kinds of listeners. There were people who listened to him because they liked him. People listened to him because they hated him. Other people listened to him because they were sort of entertained. And Dan Bongino and others in his realm do not have that quality. They People who listen to him are doing it because it is, they are sort of going deeper and deeper into a very specific and in some ways kind of esoteric realm of beliefs. And I wanted to put that on paper and really anatomize on, uh, to understand what it was. We can get into the differences between the two of them, but my sense is that Dan Bongino is not a deep thinker. He is not interested in ideas, that he's a much rawer figure than than, than Limbaugh. And so that you do don't have the, look, I, I'm, I don't want to be misunderstood here, but I've written a lot about Limbaugh. Um, but Limbaugh could be playful. Uh, Limbaugh could be unserious. Um, early in his career, he engaged in parodies. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of humor in Dan Bongino, is there? No, it's not a it's not a particularly entertaining experience. I mean, he's a combatant, and that's that's his self description. I mean, if he was asked by a fan not long ago, what would you be doing if you weren't? a radio host and 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 he said I'd I'd be doing mixed martial arts I'd be competing in it and and you know one of his friends and colleagues at Fox News Pete Hegseth told me that as Hegseth said he said I was I used I was uh, he was in the National Guard and he said I when I was in the military I carried a rifle and now I am in the world of information warfare and he said and Dan Bongino is one of our generals that framing, really? that, okay. yeah, that, 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 that's a telling kind of framing, you know? Okay, so let, let's put this in some context. I know that the political playbook, um, writing about your piece, you know, cited some statistics uh, that uh, the, the his website, the Bongino Report, has attracted more engagement than the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal combined. Okay, I'm already exhausted here. Um, you know, and 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 I know, you know, we focus, we talk a lot about, you know, Facebook and, you know, the influence of TikTok, but... Um, radio remains um, a colossus, you write. I mean, for every hour that Americans listen to podcasts, like this one last year, they listen to six and a half hours of AM, FM radio. And and so, the, you know, we wonder, you know, why do these ideas get spread? What is the mood? What's being pushed out there? This is crucial. And you immersed yourself for several months in this world. And here's the line that really jumped out at me from your piece that you will come away with the sense that the violence of January 6th was not the end of something, but the beginning. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I, I decided that I had to spend a few months really listening day after day in order to chart some through lines and to understand the themes and sort of what comes and what goes. And it's worth being clear that Dan Bongino on his podcast will condemn the violence of January 6th and, and he will talk about violence as not the answer. And then there is the broader fundamental spirit of the enterprise, which is about promoting a sense of existential conflict. It's not subtle. I mean, as he said not too long ago on the podcast, Talking about liberals and Democrats, he said to his listeners, 
these people want you dead. And he then went on and, and transitioned into an advertisement. And there's a lot of ads on mm-hmm. his shows. I mean, it is a business. And what struck me about it was when he was talking about liberals as, you know, what he said not too long ago or um, crazy demon people. I mean, there is a way in which it is designed to frame the world in a sense of perilous confrontation, that if well, you don't listen to him, then you're doomed. And that- well, let's play a, a little clip. Um, this is this is one clip of Dan Bongino doing pretty much what you just described. This is from uh, a recent show from Dan Bongino. We are rapidly moving towards an environment where conservatives are not just going to be second-class citizens. We already are where you will be third and fourth class citizens and actively discriminated against by people who celebrate it. There's a difference between not having access to the free market like conservatives don't right now. You're not allowed Uh, to be on YouTube in many cases. Um, You're not allowed to engage in any kind of corporate commerce without being boycotted. It's not just that. There are people now openly silencing and attacking conservatives, trying to have them jailed, um, trying to have them sanctioned, bankrupted, financially bankrupted, fired from their jobs. This is all happening right now. And it's all happening because of the Democrat Party and the liberals. They are now the party of rich bow tie wearing corporate elites, totalitarians, the corporate oligarchy and the big tech fascists out there. They are fascists. There's not that's not in dispute. I'm not going to argue with you if you're a liberal listening to my show. What fascists do, liberals and big tech do now. Okay, so <laughs> that that really sort of encapsulates it. You know, you are victims. They are out to get you. They right. are the real fascists, and you are under siege. That's kind of the message and the mood, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I remember that clip, and I remember looking it up on Facebook to see what the reaction was. And in the next three weeks after that was posted this fall, it was viewed uh, nearly six million times. Really? Which is just astonishing. I mean, if you if you really step back and think about what the impact of that message is, it's telling people that they are, in a way, doing a disservice to themselves and their family if they don't regard themselves as in this kind of, you know, fight for survival. And I think day after day, having that just kind of dripped into your ear uh, has an effect on people. And, you know, one person in my story commenting on it said, part of the reason why it's worth documenting this stuff is that when there is another something, whatever it is, you know, some kind of um, riot or public reaction, there people are going to look around and say, how did this happen? Well, the answer is it's been happening. It's been happening every day, hour by hour. Well, and also you, you you point out that, you know, the, these talk shows, you know, dominate a media terrain that attracts relatively little attention from their opponents. So you have a lot of focus on Fox News, but this is off a lot of the media's radar, isn't it? That's so it's right. going out there. And so my sense is sometimes that people are surprised by polls or surprised by certain attitudes because they haven't been paying attention. They haven't been watching all of this. And there's there's a lot of wish casting out there about what's going to happen with MAGA world. But they're really not aware that you have millions of people who are marinating in this hour after hour, day after day. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, part of the reason to write this was that I think if you lined up 10 kind of politically aware people on the left or in the center and you asked them, tell me a bit about Dan Bongino, most people don't know much of anything. I mean, they certainly wouldn't know that he's the fourth highest radio host in America. That he has that kind of extraordinary reach on social media we talked about, that his podcast was at one point number one on iTunes. And that's because we live in these, as we all know, we live in these very separate media terrains. But I think if people want to understand what's happening, they have to have to sit down and, and understand, well, what's being said and uh, what is the impact and how large is the audience? Because otherwise you're going to constantly be sort of caught flat footed by history. So he's really part of this group of broadcasters who really owe their power to Trump. I mean, people like Sebastian Gorka and Charlie Kirk, um, you know, they, you know, uh, the, the author Brian Rosenwald told you uh, they show the triumph of ideology over experience. I mean, you know, again, these are people who would not normally have big media platforms and didn't really have big media platforms before the age of of Trump. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is this is in some ways it's not a new phenomenon. I mean, there's been conservative talk radio. I was certainly part of it for a very long time. There were people like who who was the really deplorable guy on WABC in New York for many years? <laughs> Bob Grant. Bob Grant. I mean, just <laughs> raw. Right. I mean, but the Dan Bonginos are really kind of extraordinary. So Dan Bongino actually started this thing called the Bongino Report to try to get Trump supporters away from the Drudge Report. After Drudge soured on Trump, I mean, this this may seem like inside baseball, but his entire marketing is basically, how am I going to peel off hardcore Trumpists from other right-wing media that might not have the same level of, of emotional intensity and ideological loyalty? That's exactly right. I mean, what's fascinating to me is how fast this has all happened. I mean, yeah. five years ago, six years ago, Dan Bongino was starting a podcast in his basement with moving blankets to, you know, tacked to the walls as a kind of homespun studio. And here he is now with this sort of mini empire. And that has happened so fast. It's very different than a generation ago. You know, Rush Limbaugh spent years kind of coming up, crafting his technique. Uh, people you know better than I do would say, you know, they, they, they came up out of, for one thing, many people came over from the music side of radio. They learned how to entertain. They figured out how much can you talk for a while before you have to give people something fun. There's none of that now. It's right, much right. more of a kind of IV drip of this very intense formula of political rage making. So that's also a, a shift for me, and I don't want to be misunderstood, and I've written extensively about Limbaugh and how he's created the world that we live in today, but he was a talented radio guy. He mm -hmm. was an entertainer. And the Bonginos of the world, you know, the, the small numbers of times that I've interacted with, with him, you know, I, I'm struck by the fact that this is not a man who has talent on loan from God. <laughs> to quote, to quote, Lish, to quote Limbaugh's favorite Limbaugh. line about himself. This is not. A, I mean, then this is the point you're making here that sort of the the talent and the 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 experience have been replaced by just give the raw meat because isn't that what? I mean, doesn't this say as much about what the audience wants as it does about the hosts themselves? Yeah, that's I think the the way to think of it is that. 
in a way, the experience of listening to the radio has changed from having it be, all right, something that's on in the background. You know, you hear it maybe, you know, maybe you're, you work in a small office where they play it throughout the day or, you know, on the shop floor or you have it in the car when you're driving to and from the office or something. And this is different. You know, when you tune into this, you are getting um, a sense of a drawing of the boundaries between you and your community or your tribe and the tribe that seeks to destroy you. And that is a really sort of harsh message, but it's not, it's not subtle. I mean, I think I could, we could go through all kinds of examples of it, but it's more or less repetitive. And it's just striking to me how much that has become this kind of apocalyptic soundtrack for a fair number of Americans and how they engage with politics. And the reason why it's so remarkable today is here we are a year after January 6th. And it's not that the, you know, that that message has become more diluted. In fact, it's becoming more concentrated in these very narrow communities. So talk to me about how the Bongino phenomenon relates to, say, the rise of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, Brian Rosenwald also talked to you about that. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene gets to Congress despite, you know, voicing belief in a global cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles. She's clearly not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and yet she is a superstar on the right in the way that Bongino is. So there's a, there is a kind of a parallel here, isn't there? There really is. It's fascinating to see how somebody like Green in a previous generation would have been more or less kind of buttoned up inside the world's worst committees. She wouldn't have had any real stature. The party, uh, particularly the leadership, would have made a point to say, uh, let's just keep her out of sight uh, and out of mind because she's sort of damaging the image of the party. Today, of course, she arrives with her own pre-existing constituency. She was very closely associated with these kinds of delusions about satanic pedophiles running the government. And in some ways, Bongino has his own constituency of people that he's developed from the podcast and partly from his symbiotic relationship with Donald Trump. Trump, you know, praises him on on uh, social media. He used to you know, promote his books and stuff like that. And then Bongino, of course, would get on there and say kind words about Trump. And that created a separate uh, ladder of prominence that was very different from climbing the ladder of broadcasting, which is how you would have done it a generation earlier. So he's, he, on a daily basis, he kind of sustains the Trump faithful. And, he, you know, he's he, for people who haven't seen him, I mean, he's got this persona. He's, he's, a, he's a former cop, right? Former Secret Service agencies, muscle bound. He wears tight T-shirts all the time. He pushes these deep state theories. You had an interesting detail in your story that he became friends with Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. There was a moment in his rise when he had kind of lost a congressional. He's lost three congressional races before uh, going into broadcasting. And at one point, it wasn't clear what was going to happen to him after he'd lost in Maryland. And and he became friendly with Ginny Thomas. And Ginny Thomas was working with a group of, of like-minded uh, conservatives uh, known a group that called itself Groundswell. And mm -hmm. they were working on creating messaging. They thought that they were losing the messaging war. And they would, they would meet and talk about this and come up with phrases, which they could then deploy through various news outlets. And you began to see it. He would talk about, he would use those phrases, these kinds of approved bits of language. I mean, what critics would, of course, call propaganda. And I asked him about his relationship with Jenny Thomas. And he said, you know, she is... I'm paraphrasing. She has been somebody who has encouraged me, sort of spurred me on to 
to more intense activism. I mean, what what he said was, uh, you know, she tells me that we are the ones we've been waiting for. And right. so that is, in, in a way, a very unusual kind of relationship, obviously, the spouse of a Supreme Court justice um, and this broadcaster. Uh, so he pushes a lot of these deep state theories, right, um, about the right. election suspicions. Uh, you know, yeah, the Arizona audit didn't find anything, but who is behind the numbers? I mean, this is kind of his big thing, right? The, you know, you you quote uh, Bongino back in August saying the liberals are the man. They run big corporations. They run YouTube. They run Facebook. They run the government. We're the real misfits. We're the real rebels now. This persona, this personality on the right is crucial, I think, to understand. Mm-hmm. Because and I, I, I think that sometimes that I'm listening to progressives and they don't fully understand this kind of alternative. We are the victims. We are the we're the new revolutionaries. You know, you are the establishment. You are, you know, the, the jackbooted thugs of, uh, of whatever decade this is. Mm-hmm. That's that's essential to his message. In some ways, I was reminded as I was listening to his show about the kind of language that one hears in the marketing in the gun industry. And you know, I've spent time over the last few years sort of looking at that that vocabulary. What's known as the combat mindset is how one uh, sort of early gun writer put it. And I think that's a really important idea. People always wonder why is it that gun sales go down when Republicans are in power, and the answer is because it deprives the market of its essential energy, which is the sense that you are imperiled, dear listener. You are, you are, you are at risk. And, and he harvests that to great effect. So he'll transition from a message in which he is saying to people, we are the misfits. We are in this uh, defending one another. He'll then transition from that into an advertisement for a shotgun or a steak or a mattress. I mean, it's, but it's, you know, the commercial message is always just a few seconds away. So why did he talk to you? I'm always interested in this. I mean, he he sat down with with you. He had to know that you were probably not going to write a puff piece about him. What did he tell you? Well, he said, I mean, actually explicitly said to me in the course of the interview, you know, look, I have no illusions about the fact that I think you're going to write some warm and fuzzy piece about me. He said, but I get my say in there. And he said, and besides, you know, my listenership, my footprint is much bigger than yours. And I can come back at you much harder than whatever it is you do to me. I think he, he, the reason to talk is that, you know, he is not impoverished of self-confidence. He believes that he (laughs) is doing something that is significant. I think he, imagines that he is um, going to be the heir of Rush Limbaugh. And, you know, by God, I want to be recognized as such. Um, But he's in it for the fight. I mean, the fight, that's the word. That, Charlie, is the essential thing for him. Right. And sometimes the fight is about the fight. But I I love the quote that you actually have in the article where the reality (laughs) is, he he says to you, I've got a bigger footprint than you guys by tenfold, if not twentyfold. I don't want to be an asshole about it, but there's nothing you can write that I cannot write back even worse. It's asymmetric warfare. You'll never win. Now, of course, he is being an asshole about it, but but I do think that that it, it captures this sense that that. I, you know, I am completely impervious to anything that the traditional media can write about me, say about me. We've created our own independent ecosystem that's bigger than anything you can bring at us. So I can do anything, you can say anything, and nothing you will write about me will hurt me. And part of his 
life now is about building that parallel media world. You know, he's he's kind of involved. He's an investor and or a promoter of these various websites that like are designed parlor, like right? Parler, yeah. Rumble, and so on that are uh, all designed to be the place where you go if you get kicked off Twitter or YouTube. And his idea is that you know if we're gonna if we're gonna have a platform, we have to run the platform ourselves. And so, you know, part of it is he's kind of constantly spoiling for that fight because it's almost proof of concept that if he gets if he gets ejected from whether it's his own you know, radio show or eventually he'll end up on one of these platforms in which he profits not only as a broadcaster, but also as an investor. So, you know, it's about the business. There's a lot of business going on. Well, and it does change the dynamic, though. I mean, it 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 does it it creates a different um, you know ethical universe, um, intellectual universe. So, talk to me a little bit about Parler and Rumble. I mean, these are the yeah. the new Parler was supposed to be the new Twitter, and then it kind of you know ran into some tough stuff. Rumble is is it, give me tell me if I'm right about it. It's, it's, it will be working with Trump's new media and technology group, right, to be this parallel information economy. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the idea is that you create what are, in effect, sort of clones of YouTube and Twitter, and that those are domains in which somebody will not get kicked off for doing what YouTube calls medical misinformation or, you know, what might be described as hate speech. And that if they can run these platforms of their own, that that will give them a permanent megaphone. Now, it's worth pointing out that these are small. I mean, they've had big growth over the last couple of years, but they remain pretty tiny. Parler's a good example. At one point for a brief period, it was the number one downloaded app in the world, but then it kind of sank away as it became associated with the violence of January 6th. You know, Rumble is the, is the video version. Um, at this point, it still represents just a tiny, you know, one or two percent of of what YouTube has on a daily or monthly basis. So part of this is about puffery and creating the suggestion that there is, as he would put it, you know, this rival to YouTube. But, you know, part of the problem, Charlie, is that if the fight is the game, if that's what this is, if you if you if you rely on combat in order to. Uh, to attract your your listeners, then when you're all together, only you know if it's just your team in the locker room on your own website, that's not that's not mixed martial arts. That's a, actually something much kind of duller. And the question I think from a from a business perspective is how many people are actually really interested in going and hanging out on Rumble and talking to one another. Um, and that's an open question. This is an interesting question, I think, with, with real political significance, because, you know, I've been, I'm sure you have as well, been pouring over these numbers, these public opinion polls right. about uh, about January 6th. And, you know, a couple things stand out. Obviously, my eyes immediately go to the number of Republicans and Trump supporters who uh, believe the alternative reality, who believe the big lie or actually support what happened on January 6th. But then you pull back and you see the overwhelming numbers of Americans that that do not accept the big lie, um, that do think that January 6th, the insurrection, was a threat to democracy. And so that, I guess that's that's the question, is that as they become more hermetically sealed, they will have, you know, tighter loyalty, but is the risk that they will shrink themselves? I mean, Don Bongino is not in the business of persuading the unpersuaded, is he? He's no. in the business of fan service. So 
it becomes a tighter and smaller universe potentially, doesn't it? That's exactly it. It's essentially about hardening the hardcore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what you see in those numbers is that these two ideas that are both true at the same time. One is that the overwhelming, essentially, the you know the majority of Americans recognize that January sixth was a terrible cancer on our history, and it's something that we should be reckoning with for years to come. And then there is this small portion of Americans, not small meaning meaningless, right. but small meaning lo- smaller Relative than the majority. Right. Yeah. Uh, who believes that it was a valorizing moment. And in a way, the scary outcome or the scary implication of that is that there is some portion of Americans, as I say in the piece, who find it harder and harder to discern the boundary between rhetorical battle, rhetorical combat, and the real thing. And that's the scary phenomenon. There was a moment, a really telling moment, actually, in the fall Charlie Kirk was having a uh, convention out on Idaho and a guy mm-hmm. got up and, and Charlie Kirk, after all, is one of this generation of broadcasters, essentially kind of spawned and cultivated by the Trump era. And a guy got up and asked him and said plainly, when do we get to use the guns? He said, you know, how many elections yep. do they have to steal before we get to kill them? And it was kind of a chilling moment. And Charlie Kirk said, you know, well, well, I have to condemn that. He sort of seemed to sense how bad that was going to look. Because he would on- play badly. It would play badly, yeah, yeah. certainly. It wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't do him any favors uh, on YouTube. And yet, he, so then he goes to this convoluted explanation to say, well, don't fall into the trap of that's exactly what they, you know, that's what they want us to do because they are the ones who are in fact violent. But that idea, that, and the guy, interestingly, followed up and said, no, 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 when do we get to get, when do we get to use the guns? That was such a telling indicator of that scary, porous border between rhetorical and real. I imagine that you were not at all surprised by um, the results earlier this week that that what um, something like uh, a third of voters are uh, willing to support political violence to get their to get their ends. Uh, yeah, I, I'm afraid I'd say this with sorrow. I mean, I've been writing since before, actually, shortly before the election. I wrote a piece in The New Yorker about the kind of fluorescence of this period of political violence. This was obviously before January 6th, but all of the measures, all of the alarm bells are blinking. And the scholars who follow the indicators of uh, precursors of violence in politics were saying to me, this is really a five alarm fire. And I feel really mournful about talking about this because it's so bleak. But if we don't talk about it, then it, we're, it's going to catch us by surprise again. And I, in a curious way, I was at the Capitol on January 6th as a reporter, hmm. and my dominant experience of it was, why are we surprised? We shouldn't be surprised. No, I, I had that reaction as well, but I think the fact that so many people were surprised is goes to your exact point, that they have not been, that they were not paying attention to what was being said um, out there in the world. And I, and I feel that, you know, that that's happening again. And also, I, 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 we talk about the, the red lights blinking. So, you know, one in three Americans say they believe violence against the government can be justified. And then you had that CBS poll that found there's 12% of the country and a fifth of Trump's voters that want Trump to fight to retake the presidency right now. Again, these may be you know small minorities, but you don't need a large number of people to misunderstand where that line is for yeah. things to get bad. That's um, exactly one percent yeah. of the American public is is three million people. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, unfortunately, you know, history is written by these 
you know, tiny groups of, of people who take action into their own hands. And that's can be a, a, a terrifying fact if you think about it in terms of, of what that means. I mean, I, I was talking to Larry Diamond, who is mm-hmm. a scholar at Stanford, who studies sort of the health and ill health of democracy. And he had said to me at one point, shortly before the election, he says, what worries me as an American is I'm seeing all of the indicators here that we saw in Israel before the assassination of Yitzhak mm-hmm. Rabin. That is just a chilling fact. And he doesn't say that to be inflammatory. He says it as a scholarly matter. And I think what we have to think about is, look, I think here's the positive piece of this, Charlie, because that's also important to mention, which is this is in our hands, that history doesn't move in some sort of predestined arc towards, you know, okay, we're on a negative, irretrievable trajectory towards political disaster. No, you we can bend this curve by talking about it, acknowledging it, realizing where the threat lies and figuring out how to how to fix it. And you know, that's part of the reason for writing stories that try to diagnose the problem clearly. You know, I, I, I'm sometimes reminded there's a line by Albert Einstein who said, if you give me an hour to talk about how to fix something, I'm going to spend 55 minutes trying to correctly describe the problem and maybe five minutes proposing what I think we can do about it. Well, let's talk about your book, uh, Wildland, The Making of America's Fury, because you you moved to D.C. in uh, moved back to D.C. in in 2013 after being away from the country for for a long time. And your, your first book was about uh, the new China. Um, and, you know, you uh, reading from the, the, the cover of the book, you, you found yourself making a case for America, urging the citizens of Egypt, Iraq or China to trust that even though America had made grave mistakes throughout its history, it aspired to some foundational moral commitments, the rule of law, the power of truth, the right of equal opportunity for all. You come back here and you find each of these principles under assault. I know we don't have an infinite amount of time here, but I guess this is the question. What? what did happen and is happening to us. What is the roots of America's fury? It's not just economic anxiety. It's right. not just the media. I mean, how did we get here? In a way, I, I set out to try to answer that question for myself in the way yeah. that felt credible, which is to say I went to places that I know. I mean, I, I decided, I, I think as a reporter, Charlie, we all have experience of sort of dropping into a place we don't know, kind of parachuting in. And that's a it's a good faith effort. Often you talk to as many people as you can try to write up what you've found and so on. This required something different. I thought this required a a sense of change over time. So I went to three places where I've lived in the United States, very different places, Uh, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut, which is after all a wealthy suburb of New York City and Clarksburg, West Virginia, which is a a small city in the northern part of the state where I started my first job as a a, uh, journalist out of college. And then Chicago, where I worked for a long time, and uh, I worked at the Chicago Tribune for a long time, and my family's from there. And I realized if I went to those three places, I would get a sense of all of these elements, the economics, the racial component of this, the role of money, the role of the information ecosystem, but actually told through individual lives. And the surprise for me, I guess, Charlie, was not that we are living these completely separate lives, which is, I think, how we usually tell the story of how we got here. It's actually that we're impacting one another in ways that we don't fully recognize all the time and that that is driving some of this frustration. Where do you see us going? Because I guess when I finished my book back in 2017, 
I remember telling people that everything I'm describing is going to get worse. So I had a relatively right. pessimistic point of view. But I have to say that the trajectory was was worse and the pace was much more intense than I thought. And so that all of these things that we're describing seem to be accelerating. And, yeah. and, and and the forces that of normals, I mean, let's face it, I mean, 2021 was the year that we were told we we're going to have a return to normalcy. And here we are. And I think there's a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of disillusionment. Uh, Joe Biden was, I thought he was the man for the moment. You've written a book about Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I think that you could certainly make the case that there is going to be no return to normalcy anytime soon. If, I, I, if we ever had anything such a thing as normalcy. So this may sound crazy coming from somebody who's writing about some of these kind of grim subjects, but I actually find reasons to believe in a an encouraging scenario, not tomorrow. I mean, not in the sort of immediate short term, but in the medium really? term. So I'll tell you why. I mean, it's partly related to having lived in these countries like, you know, living in authoritarian countries like China, like Egypt. You know, I was in Iraq uh, after the invasion and was in and out for the next couple of years. So I sort of. I, when I look at my own country, I compare it to these other systems and try to understand what is our thing? What do we do? And the thing that is really still our American special sauce is this capacity for self-correction. I mean, almost despite our best efforts. I mean, we create political systems that entrench power. We create gerrymandering that makes it very hard to change the composition of Congress. And yet, we still figure out ways of changing the political mood. I mean, just even as recently as look at the difference between the end of the Bush administration and the Obama administration or the end of the Obama administration and the Trump administration. We have this pendulous quality to our politics. We really do have the power to change ourselves. And that is that is extraordinary. And it's not something you see all over the world. And I think for me, what I think is likely to happen is we are we are in for a very rocky period mm -hmm. over the next few years. There's just no question about it because of all the things you and I have been talking about today. Those are in train. Those are already uh, facts on the ground about how we consume information, about how we're divided up. But we're talking about it. And talking about it, curiously enough, is actually the first step in beginning to address these issues. And talking about it is not something that people do in every country. They certainly can't talk about it in China because of the restrictions on the ability to have an honest conversation about politics. There's all kinds of places where you can't really address what ails you as a political culture with any candor. So I don't want to be Pollyannish and say, oh, everything's going to be fine just because we're, you know, reading and writing about it. But I do think that that is an essential piece of the process of beginning to fix what ails us. Well, obviously, I'm desperately hoping that you are right about this, but you say we're talking about it, but who are we talking about it to? Going back to our earlier discussion, are Americans talking with one another or are they talking past one another? Are we having these separate conversations in these separate silos? In fact, couldn't you make the case right now that we are talking with one another less now than we ever have? Yes, I Somewhere. think you're right about that. No, I, I don't disagree at all. I mean, I, I, I sort of, in a way, I have to say I'm pessimistic in the short term and optimistic in the medium term. I mean, in the long run, we're all dead, right? But I mean, in the medium term, <laughs> in the medium term, it's not out of our grasp. I mean, we created the regulatory system that allowed social media to become what it is today. We are capable of talking about and ultimately creating a different kind of political environment. Um, 
you know, I Wildland is really a book about how we got so divided, not overnight, not over the course of four years of Trump's presidency, but actually over the course of a generation. Right. And I think it's going to take more than a year to un to fix it because of how serious the problems are. Will it take a generation? I think it may well. Yeah, actually, I think it may well. Well, and I and I think the other takeaway is that uh, you're describing this new culture, this new ecosystem of information warfare, and as January 6th made perfectly clear, uh, the uh, rhetorical warfare can very easily turn into the real thing. And I think that's the that's the shorter term challenge. Yeah, that's the boundary that we should be worried about is the folks out there who don't understand that when a businessman on the radio is talking about people coming for your job, coming for your family, coming for your life, and then he goes into selling a product, that that is actually, that's a show. And that that's not the same as saying it's now time to go out and storm the Capitol. The book is Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. Evan Osnos, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. My pleasure, Charlie. I really enjoyed it. And thank you all for joining us on today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.